Is Monarchy Absurd? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Victor Muniz Fraticelli. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Victor Muniz Fraticelli. Victor is Associate Professor of Law and Political Science at McGill University. His interests range across philosophy, politics, and law. He's currently working on the justification and institutional requirements of associational autonomy. He also works on contemporary liberal theory, with special emphasis on the work of John Rawls, on intergenerational justice, and on the relationship of private law to sovereignty and constitutionalism. He received his PhD in political science from the University of Chicago in 2008, and his JD from the University of Puerto Rico in 1999, where he also served in Law Review. In 2000 and 2001, he clerked at the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico. Victor, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure to have you on. So, Victor, we base each of our episodes on a question and just go wherever the conversation answers take us. Our question today is, is monarchy absurd? And that's a fun way for us to explore the alleged benefits of constitutional monarchy and what constitutional monarchy really means and so on and so forth. So before we get fully started into that, though, and into that investigation, I think something fun to introduce would be your interest on the topic and how it started. So you actually said in an email to us, I believe, now now that I think about it, that you know this did start partly as a joke, and we were just talking about that right before we started recording together. So take us, take some time and take us through your thoughts. What do you mean this started as a joke, and how does that develop into something that you're going to think about seriously? What happened there? So in terms of my background, I don't come from a, a, a country that has had a historical monarchy for the recent past, at least. I'm originally from Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico was ruled by the Spanish monarchy for 400 years. Uh, it never had a revolution. It never voted to become a Republican government. Uh, the Americans just happened to, happened to win the Spanish-American War in 1898 and 1899. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, there were Republican institutions everywhere, and the monarchy was fairly quickly forgotten. So it's, it's certainly not in my bones. In fact, uh, uh, when I became a Canadian citizen uh, about seven years ago or so, um, I, I had to swear an oath, and that was around the time when there was some uh, debate about whether uh, some people could opt out of the reference to the Queen of Canada uh, in their oath. Um, and, and that was the first, the first joke that I started to tell about the monarchy. I said, I don't have any problem uh, swearing to the Queen of Canada. After all, in Puerto Rico, we had a king uh, for 400 years. The king was taken away from us without our consent. We never voted on the king, and she's basically a cousin of half of Europe. So I'm just transferring my histor- historical loyalties to another member of the family. Uh, this did not actually play very well with my wife, who uh, <laughs> is much more of a staunch uh, uh, Republican in that sense. Uh, she thought that uh, the entire institution was was absurd to the point of being offensive, that, that uh, a people who accepts to be governed by a monarch uh, is is lacking in some kind of... Uh, I don't know, militant self-respect or something like that. So I think that um, the the first uh, articulation of my interest in the monarchy was this articulation in uh, historical continuities of, of different sorts and, and discontinuities. <clears throat> but then I, you know, with the, the passion of a convert, 
uh, now that I had sworn allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and her heirs and successors. Uh, with the passion of a convert, I started to, to advocate uh, in uh, different faculty meetings and, and, and tables uh, with, well, mostly either Canadian Republican or American uh, faculty members who, who were just automatically disposed uh, to dislike the institution. Uh, and I settled on an argument uh, that I would just throw out there to be provocative. I said, the problem is that everybody tries to justify the monarchy as uh, an institution that somehow benefits the country uh, in a very direct and rational way. You can right. do a cost-benefit analysis. You can uh, trot out the numbers for tourism. Uh, you can perhaps um, appeal to the emotional connection that people feel, uh, but which, you know, as, as happened in Puerto Rico, can get transferred very quickly. Um, my argument in the end was that the monarchy is completely absurd. The monarchy, especially in the current Canadian context, makes absolutely no sense. And in the context of some of the most successful monarchies, at least in Europe, now, the, the monarchies of the Scandinavian countries, uh, the monarchy of the Netherlands, uh, the Spanish monarchy has been tottering a bit. The British monarchy uh, is a complicated example. But the monarchies that most people like and accept in their countries are just as absurd. And the fact that people like them doesn't make any difference. But it's the absurdity that gets monarchy its value. It's the fact that it is beyond rational argument, that it is this thing that exists like some kind of fact of nature or mythology, uh, and that you can't really argue against because it's so absurd. It's almost like a performance piece uh, that you can't really reform without recognizing its absurdity. And as a liberal, I thought that liberalism has in general been a little bit too rational in its approach to politics and that having an absurdity at the center of the state uh, is a useful corrective uh, mm. that, that helps to ultimately prop up uh, the, the affections and the, what, what Edmund Burke called the prejudices uh, that, that ultimately prop up the system. So that was the joke. You know, first it was the joke about, about getting my, my queen back uh, and then the joke about that being uh, essentially an absurd proposition and how that was a good thing. Absurd, a little absurdity is a good thing. Right. Yeah. And as you said, just just the oath itself, like even comes across as a little absurd to, to anybody that would actually understand the context of swearing to the queen at this point. Right. I mean, it is it is absurd. Uh, it is absurd to swear to a member of a family who got her position by. uh by the accident of birth and by the accident right. of perhaps a couple of resignations in her in her past. You know, if, if, if you've watched The Crown, uh, you know that she she never thought that she would become queen, in part because her father never thought that he would become king. Uh, and it was the, the resignation of Edward VIII um, that that precipitated, you know, what what is now the longest ruling uh, monarch uh, in, in the history of the United Kingdom. But. Um, but there are there are ways in which something has to occupy the place of the crown. So the absurdity is not that having a head of state is absurd. It's rather that the way that you 
that you choose and fill that head of state uh, right. doesn't seem to square with most of the intuitions of modernity, not just of liberalism, but of modernity itself. Um, a head of state is, is, is a kind of necessary thing in the world. Uh, having someone who, or something that, that embodies and represents the state, which is one of the functions of the crown, the state as a kind of corporate agent, uh, the state as something that can enter into contracts, uh, that can enter into treaties, that is uh, the thing in whose name certain actions are undertaken. Right. That's one thing. Uh, it's also good to differentiate between the state and the government, either conceptually or institutionally. So conceptually, you, you have a differentiation between that kind of outward looking uh, or, or symbolic or corporate entity, and then the people who happen to occupy it. Uh, and, and we usually make that the distinct, distinction between the head of state and the head of government. Now, that distinction is very clear in parliamentary systems, whether continental European parliamentary systems or Westminster systems like, like Canada's and the UK's. It's also conceptually there in, in the American case. It's just that the same person happens to occupy both the function of head of state and of head of government. The president is, is both. By having the same person be both, it creates certain kinds of complications that scholars over the years have, have pointed out. First of all, you get way too invested in your government. Uh, the, the person who actually doles out the money is also the object of your affections. And that's just a bad thing to have. Right. Yeah, uh, fair you, enough. You, 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 don't, you don't want to, uh, um, you don't want to think of, uh, the president as too much as your actual father. I mean, there's already a kind of paternal, uh, uh, feeling to it ever since George Washington, you know, had this, this, uh, very, uh, uh, either paternal or avuncular image that he projected. Um, but it's it's more like a father if they control your allowance as well. So you, you want to uh, be able to separate the effective elements of the head of state from the more banal day-to-day uh, -day elements of the head of government, basically so that you can kick your head of government out without feeling too guilty or too identified or too uh, conflicted about it. Uh, and that's what you get in Canada. I mean, when you, with, with fairly few exceptions, you can get rid of a government and get another government and change prime ministers. Uh, and no one thinks that there is a fundamental existential crisis in the country, right. uh, which, which you do in the U.S. So that, that, that kind of function, I mean, is it, not absurd. Having the function of a head of state is not absurd. But it's a function that can be filled in other ways. In, in European Republics, you have presidents who are sometimes purely symbolic, uh, who are appointed perhaps for life, perhaps for a certain number of years, but a fairly long period of time. And they really play very little role in the day-to-day -day of governance. They do play some role in the uh, ceremonial aspects, uh, right. in the almost, you know, they have an institutional place, for example, because they are the ones who may dissolve parliament or uh, or not, or who accept ministers or not, or who receive, uh, in theory, uh, ambassadors from other countries. So they have that kind of representative role, but they're really not very important in the day-to-day. -day. You have others like the president of France, who was deliberately uh, created in the Fifth Republic to be a very strong president, uh, 
But even that strong president has different uh, uh, heads of government. And, and you've had, you know, one of the first political crises in France was whether you could have the president of one party and the prime minister of a different party. Uh, whether you could have what they call cohabitation, cohabitation between two different parties. And they right. settled on that being a possibility. So it created certain kinds of dynamics uh, and compromises. Um, so you can have a head of state that's different from the head of government, but is not there because their father or their mother happened to occupy the office. Right. Okay. So, so to dig into that part a little bit further, just to understand your thought, it's that it's not necessarily when we look at the maybe the 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 benefits of the of the monarchy as it exists, for instance, in the Commonwealth with Queen Elizabeth in Canada and so on and so forth in other countries. It isn't necessarily the fact it is in fact historically a monarchy per se. You're, you're you're saying basically just the function that that happens to serve, whether this you know head of state or this person with symbolic power is indeed separate from other forms of actual power. For example, that's really the the core of your thoughts on this. Whether they wear wear crowns and carry a bunch of scepters around, or they're actually just wearing a suit or, or whatever it is you're saying it's actually the function that it served is actually the the interesting and 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 ultimately effective and important part well the the, the function that that a head of state serves uh is is important and necessary so that's the necessary part so if you're going to defend the the persistence of monarchy i'm not advocating to france for france to to suddenly bring back the Count of Paris, who's one of the pretenders, and institute right. them on the throne, that makes absolutely no sense for the French. My argument is more along the lines of um, that it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense for, and, and there's not a very strong argument for countries that already have a monarch who is a functional monarch uh, to get rid of that monarch, that, that there's, there's some benefits to that. So the general argument about a head of state is one thing, and we and that head of state can be filled in different ways. In order to turn that into an argument in favor of the monarchy, or at least tentatively in favor of the monarchy, um, there has to be something that the monarchy brings to the position of head of state that is not quite as easily achievable by other kinds of arrangements. And I think that in some cases, um, the monarch, because of its absurdity, brings something new and interesting. Um, one argument, which is not my argument, and I'm not sure I completely believe it, but I think it's it's really neat in terms of the way it's put together, uh, was put to me by a, a professor in religious studies. And they, um, they were arguing that the, the fact that there is a family, an actual family with parents and children's and dramas at the head of the political community somehow connects the most basic day-to-day um, -day relationships that people have with the political structure. Uh, and he phrased it in a uh, in, 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 in the terms that Hegel phrased, the development of political society. And Hegel uh, uh, was, was famous for having a very convoluted theory that seemed to point towards absolutism, but in fact was very much a liberal and very much a, constitutional, uh, uh, a constitutionalist and a defender of constitutional monarchy. Hegel says that the first experience that we have is the experience of being loved unconditionally in a family. Not everyone has that, but ideally that's what a family ought to do. That family forms you and then sends you out into the world, into a world that doesn't 
really care about you because of who you are and how special you are, but rather in terms of what you can bring to others, what value you can create for others, the, the, the world of civil society, the world of trade, uh, the world of, of employment. Uh, and that is the second moment of in the, in the development of society in which you enter into civil society and become uh, someone engaged in the economy. And then after that, through participation in the political state, you enter into the third and final state of political development, which Hegel calls ethical life. And this professor of religious studies was using the Hegelian framework to say, when you, when you have a family and someone who inherits the throne at that moment of ethical life, it basically closes the circle. And it makes the entire political community into something more intimate. Now, I see the appeal of that kind of argument. I'm just a little bit suspicious of the thesis that we have to make the political community into something more intimate that we identify with more. I think that, okay. if anything, we ought to be doing the, the, the opposite. But that's one argument that you could use to say that the hereditary monarchy is an especially good way to fill that position. My arguments... Um, use the same mechanism of heredity, but push in the opposite direction. I think that the fact that someone becomes a monarch through heredity means that they are fundamentally out of our reach or out of the reach of our ambition. I will never become the king of Canada. My children will never become monarchs. This is something... and, and. The most important thing is that the prime minister, no matter how popular, no matter what their their lineage is, even if they're the son of a prior prime minister, will never become king of Canada. So there is a limit. There is something that is beyond the reach of any citizen and especially importantly of any politician. They are never at the very, very top of the political pyramid, which creates Hmm. a kind of forced humility. You are dispensable in the way that advisors, ministers mm-hmm. are dispensable. Right. That's interesting. Like the, the, the machine can continue with or without you if you look at the whole framework, right? Yes. And there's also a sense of alienation. And some people use the, the figure of the monarch for, well, some of the other functions the monarch has. And I think I, I mentioned them just very briefly, but we can, we can see them if we look at any criminal case. Um, If we're going to have a criminal legal system that um, defends public interests, including the interest in in safety, including everybody's interest in being protected uh, from someone who may be stronger or who may be more uh, wily than they are, um, well, you know, modern societies have settled on, on society itself being the one that prosecutes criminals. It wasn't always this way. Uh, you look at the systems in Rome and 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 ancient Athens, and, and most prosecutions were private affairs. When one person brought a lawsuit against the other, were a criminal prosecution. But now, right. it's the whole society. In some countries, you have the people, like in the United States, right. uh, you have the people bringing a case against a criminal or a, an accused person, not a criminal until they're pro- they're, they're convicted. Right. But, uh, against uh, they, the people themselves bring an accusation. That creates all sorts of metaphysical problems and, and, and political ones as well. You know, going back to Hegel, Hegel says that, that when you commit a crime, 
uh, and you are punished for that crime, in a way you are punishing yourself because as a rational agent, you know that as a member of the people, you are punishing yourself. That that may be true in some formal way, but it's just weird. And I mean, it, it and it it leads to uh, a couple of other strategies that I think are are really problematic for society. Either mm. in order to avoid the weirdness, you place yourself outside society and you say, no, you know, I'm not part of the people. I'm just, you know, on my own against, against it all. Um, that creates all sorts of antisocial uh, impulses. Um, or the people themselves disown you. The people say, well, now that you have committed a crime, you are beyond the pale. John, John Locke famously uh, uh, argued um, that, that one who violates the natural law becomes an outlaw. And an outlaw means someone who's not protected by the law, who's not protected by the ordinary mechanisms of, of justice. And I think that's also a bad thing. I think that people who are convicted of crimes should not suddenly be deemed uh, 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 liable to being killed without with impunity at, at right. any corner. Right. So there's something about the people that scares me a little bit as the, the agent of justice. In other countries, uh, it's perhaps the republic, you know, this abstraction, but this abstraction with a massive amount of, of power. I actually kind of like the fact that it's Elizabeth herself who is prosecuting. It, it, it actually brings it down, considering that she doesn't actually have the power. It's not, you know, like in the time of King James, uh, uh, someone who could actually point the finger and say, have that person thrown in right. jail. She doesn't actually have the power, but there's a personal element. Right. Uh, and an element that says that those who are acting are acting in the name of an individual, uh, which means, which I think, which I think makes it all the more clear that the criminal law is an act of violence. It's an act of violence that perhaps is sometimes necessary. It's an act of violence that uh, is perhaps in some cases exercised correctly and on the right side because you're trying to prevent someone else from committing violence. Right. But it's ultimately something done by people to people. It's not like, you know, a contract between corporations, which you could you could argue is is far more abstract. So I think that having that role for a, an individual who is identifiable um, is also this kind of limiting factor in government. Right, and, and for and for those who might not be familiar about the the literal connection you're making, of course, you're referring to the fact that that the crown prosecutes literally if people right. go check court right. records and criminal law, correct? So if you, if you if you look at a criminal case in the United States, is you know the people uh, versus uh, Alex Aragona, right? But uh, if you do it in in Canada, it's R, which stands for Regina, the Queen, uh, versus you know whoever is accused. So right. So there's, there, I th I think that it. it Rather than than mystifying uh, the relationship between the state and the individual, this actually kind of lays it bare. You know that this is an individual, uh, or, or rather that there are individuals, there are people who are acting against someone else, and that even if it's done in the name of justice, it's still a very personal thing to everyone who is affected. So th those are the kinds of things where I think that having this this kind of absurd crown is important. Now, the last one, and it's it's the actual joke that I, that I would tell for, for 
fellow uh, faculty members. It's just a pure distillation of the absurdity. And it's this. Um, ever since Thomas Hobbes and all the social contract theorists who followed Hobbes developed the notion of the state as the outcome of a rational process where I, I am, for Hobbes, I am in the state of nature. I realize that I am unprotected. I realize that even if I'm fairly strong, there's still someone with a little knife who might be able to kill me. And the only way that I can have enough peace to pursue my own desires and, and, and to pursue art and commerce and all these things is by giving power to someone who will keep everybody else in check, including myself. Or later in Kant, who says, I know myself to not just be an animal who needs to eat and hold things and get shelter for the night, but someone who, who is rational and who has long-term plans and who needs to, um, to have a certain kind of certainty in their life. Uh, so I need to create a state that will guarantee the institution of property. So th the whole history of liberalism is in general the history of the rationalization of politics. And the power of the liberal sovereign, even if it's a minimal state, even if it's a democratic state, uh, even if it's a state that is well-balanced between different uh, institutions uh, or, or, or bound by a certain constitutional structure, still creates an extremely powerful thing. And especially in liberal democracies that have majorities backing the government. So it's not just an abstract principle that happened to win in a debate, but actually the bulk of the people backing the government. Putting limits on sovereignty itself is very important. Now, when there were claimants to absolute monarchy, the limit on sovereignty was parliament or the limit of so on sovereignty were other institutions in society like free cities or you know, universities, towns, merchants, you know, all these other kinds of institutions that try to um, resist the overwhelming power of the sovereign. But when you have arguably the most legitimate political system in history, liberal democracy, you need something to limit the claims of sovereignty of liberal democracy. You need mm. something that will tell even the people that there are some things that they should not be able to do. And having this kind, and, and that there's, and, and that it's just, yes, ultimately it is a rational argument that, that um, to say that an, a completely unfettered sovereign is bad, but in some cases, an unfettered sovereign for a period of time might be a good thing. If you have, if you have really bad injustices in a society, it might be good to have someone who can just smash right through them. But having this thing that kind of stands outside of the people that cannot really be reformed by the people because it's one of the most, without a revolution, you can't really just change the monarchy completely or abolish the monarchy completely, is a constant reminder that even the most legitimate political system in history should not be allowed to be absolute. 
Right. And and even and even if in sometimes people like to joke as well with the queen or especially in Canada's case, like has no actual power, for instance, a lot of it is barriers of tradition. <laughs> even if that's the case, um, mm-hmm. if the people can literally do something, if they truly wanted to, whether it's the force, the resignation of a governor general, even if they don't sign something or whatever, you can come up with different examples. Even just that barrier of sort of tradition, the idea that it, it wouldn't do to do something for the public image of the prime minister or whatever the case may be, or to cause this crisis, which might not actually be a legal crisis, but might just be a crisis of optics, frankly, even that can be a, a, a constraining a constraint and, and a restraining force, which I think is very interesting to your point. And I think it, 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 would, be, it would be an interesting uh, uh, psychological or traditional break, but I think it actually has a lot more teeth than that. Uh, some of it depends, of course, on, on how people uh, behave, uh, but there are certain powers and prerogatives. There are very few now, but there are certain powers and prerogatives that uh, depend on the position of the crown that can form the basis for the assertion of very important rights. I think the most important one, and the one that that, that sometimes escapes people because it seems seems kind of odd or counterintuitive uh, at first sight, is that some of the staunchest defenders of monarchy in Canada, that is of the preservation of monarchy, of of not turning Canada into a republic, are indigenous peoples, First Nations, Miti, and uh, 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 Inuit. The reason is that, especially for those indigenous nations that, that had a treaty before confederation, their treaties were with the crown. They were not with the Canadian government and they were not with the provincial government. Now, it's right. true that both the Canadian government and the provincial governments have very often violated treaties. They very often interpreted treaties in ways that are uh, not only contrary to their purpose, but just gross injustices against humanity. And, and the entire history of residential schools is, in many ways, the a deliberate misreading of a treaty that was intended to bring the benefits of uh, scientific and and and, uh, and 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 organizational advantages, uh, and became a culturally genocidal project. But in principle, the Canadian government cannot revoke any treaty with any indigenous nation. The provincial government cannot revoke any treaty with any indigenous nation. So the the treaty claims of indigenous peoples bypass the democratic process of of Canadian politics. They bypass it because they are only revisable by the queen. And that, that creates an actual legal argument that you can use to defend indigenous rights. Um, there are there are I think other other interesting ways in which uh, the crown um, has an effect on Canada. Uh, so back in uh, I can't remember the date exactly. I think it was in two thousand five. Uh, the uh, the United Kingdom changed the rules of succession, and it was a very long overdue uh, uh, amendment. They they basically. Uh, changed uh, the idea, uh, 2015, I think it was, they changed the the um, uh, male preference primogenitor uh, system that had prevailed until 
the ascension of, of Queen Elizabeth um, that would favor any male child in right. the line of descent over any female child, even if the female child was older. This, this was discussed uh, before uh, the birth of, of Prince George, um, uh, because if the firstborn child of uh, William and Kate uh, had been a girl, there might have been a constitutional crisis uh, later on. Both in the United Kingdom and in Canada, I think there is overwhelming support for getting rid of rules like male preference primogeniture. The United Kingdom changed the rule, but the problem is that back in 1931, uh, the crowns of Canada and the United Kingdom were separated. There was a, a, an act, uh, the, uh, the Statute of Westminster, that said that all the dominions of the British Empire would get their own monarch, their own crown. Now, it just happens to be the same person occupying all those crowns. But if we think about it, for example, uh, in the way that uh, someone who's a member of a corporate board can sit on separate corporate boards, or someone who owns uh, a company or owns a store can also own another store. Um, and the contracts that the first corporation makes don't bind the second. The crowns of the British Empire were separated so that now the Queen of Canada is a different queen from the Queen of the United Kingdom. Now, there's a, 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 one of the best scholars on, on the crown uh, in Canada, Philippe Lagasse, has uh, explained how uh, some other domains of the former British Empire, uh, New Zealand, I think Australia as well, um, actually amended their constitutions in certain ways to ensure that it was very clear that now they had a separate sovereign. Canada hasn't really done so. It's basically allowed, in Philippe Lagasse's words, it's allowed the, the crown to drift. It's allowed the crown to uh, exist in this kind of unarticulated space. So when the British government changes the rule of male preference for progenitor, uh, Canadians were asked to do so as well. Uh, and But the problem was that to do so, you would have to amend the constitution. And in this particular case, on, on the person of, of the crown, it would have required unanimity among all Canadian provinces. Now, as soon as you open the doors to amending the Canadian constitution, all sorts of things are going to be asked. Right. All sorts of things are open to negotiation. Right. Uh, so what the, the Harper government did was, no, no, we, we, are, we are effectively amending the constitution by reference. Uh, that is, if if the British um, change their rules of primogeniture, well, the Canadian rules were automatically changed. But this contradicts the idea that the crown of Canada is a different crown. And you have examples of something like this happening in Europe. You had different rules of descendant, uh, descendants in different uh, countries. Um, and uh, I, I right now I can't remember if it was uh, Liechtenstein or Luxembourg uh, separated from the crown of the Netherlands because the rules for who had to become the monarch uh, were, were different in both jurisdictions. So you had one monarch who was monarch of both and different children or at least different members of the family ended up in the different crowns and they separated. Conceivably, you could argue that if in the future uh, a British monarch has a female descendant who is older than the male descendant, Canada would have a different line of descent than the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, of course, this was litigated by people who 
wanted to open up the constitution in order to get all these other kinds of things in. So it, it the idea of the crown is a live legal problem in the context of constitutional reform, in the context of treaty rights. Uh, and uh, even if the queen does nothing herself, the fact that the institution exists and that it has an important role in the legal structure of Canada has effects that are very important and go to the very heart of what Canada is. Right. Absolutely. And and I'm going to hold us there because we do need to take a break. It's a little later in the game than usual, but I did not want to break our, our momentum there. So we're going to take the break right now. And we'll be right back quick. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Victor Muniz Fraticelli. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Andy Crooks, and Ben Hobbs. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Victor Muniz Fratachili today. Victor, I think the first part of our conversation was great. We went right through how you said that a lot of this thought process you started off as a joke and then you really thought about it. And we also talked about, you know, what the monarchy really means, especially to Canada, you know, some of your thoughts on the benefits of it. And, and I think there's a lot of great stuff in there. For the last swing of our conversation, I have, I have a couple of follow ups here, but I want to sort of get into one specific point here first, which is that. I, th- I think a lot of the things that you're saying is a lot of food for f- food for thought. I think our listeners are going to have a lot to think about, and I think there is a lot to be said about some of the benefits you're talking about. Um, I, I don't. I'm. What, my my next question is isn't uh, saying that you've certainly implied this, but I'm just saying this is a general thing. Thing I've heard a lot of people talk about, which is that sometimes I find that some of the arguments w- would uh, for the monarchy or constitutional monarchy and the benefits it would take your points, but but then go a little further. And I'm going to give you an example. Like for instance, uh, you you sent over some reading you thought was interesting. This was uh, this is a quote from the, the monarchy and the constitution that that I read out, and um and it's and it says the following. Constitutional monarchy is a form of government that ensures not conservatism, but legitimacy. We've talked about that, for example. A constitutional monarchy settles beyond argument the crucial question of who is to be the head of state, and it places the position of head of state beyond political competition. We've talked about that. That makes a lot of sense. But then the quote goes on to say, in doing so, it alone can represent the whole nation in an emotionally satisfying way. It alone is in a position to interpret the nation to itself. So just as a point of thought here i think the first part of that quote that block quote makes a lot of sense and we covered that and i think it'd be hard to find an argument against that it's that last part i'm a little particularly interested in for example so if if we take the the aboriginal case for example and you know obviously full disclaimer i'm certainly in no position to talk for for any aboriginal person and nor should anyone say that they could talk for all of them ever so so that's Mm -hmm. a different thing but but for the sake of the discussion i think the first part again of that block will make a lot of sense you know you brought up in the the first part of our conversation for example that there are some very practical and effective reasons as to why for instance even different aboriginal uh and and first nations nations would want to deal with the monarchy but that last part is might be particularly troubling as a part of the argument you know representing the nation in an emotionally satisfying way, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm quite sure that there would be a lot of First Nations people, for example, that would say, yes, there's practical effects to the monarchy, but they're not going to go a step further and say that this, this framework would ever represent them in an emotionally satisfying way, for example. So 
how, in your mind, how do you strike that balance between sort of the the uh, practical effects of the monarchy, but also, you know, I'm sure you talk to people that take it that one step further again, that talk about mm-hmm. the symbolism and the emotional satisfaction of that whole thing. Where do you come down that? Do you think that's too far? Or is the quote I read out, you know, you're saying, no, that's perfect. Where do you stand on this kind of balance? Right. So I, I, I think it depends on the country and it depends on the group within the country. So okay. when I said that many defenders of the monarchy uh, are indigenous nations in Canada. Um, I don't think that they defend the monarchy because of an effective link necessarily. Of course, it it varies enormously between individuals and it varies enormously between different uh, indigenous nations because some of them are uh, uh, protected by treaties. Some of them uh, are not. Uh, Some of them have um, perhaps an effective element that makes them feel like they are part of the Canadian people and that the notion of the Canadian people ought to be enlarged uh, from the, uh, you know, this kind of binational, bicultural uh, conception of English and French nations to include, at the very least, uh, the different Indigenous nations. Uh, But some of them may not. Uh, I I remember uh, uh, a... um, film uh, uh, I watched very early when I came to Canada um, when um, a politician went on uh, onto a reserve and, and, and saw this fascinating, you know, radar dish that for, for television reception. Um, uh, and, and his first question was, Oh, do you get, uh, do you get the CBC? Uh, and uh, his interlocutor said, yes, we get all foreign channels. Um, (laughs) so the, the argument about the indigenous defense of the monarchy is, is compatible with both some indigenous nations and some indigenous individuals identifying with Canada as a nation and seeing the queen represent that. And it's also compatible with, uh, certain indigenous nations and indigenous individuals not identifying with Canada as a nation. And in fact, um, looking to the queen as an equal partner in a, uh, relationship between nations uh, so that you, you can feel entirely foreign and have an instrumental view of the monarchy. You could, in fact, be very much a Republican in your heart and still think that because you do not trust certain democratic processes, uh, you would rather retain the uh, monarchical anachronism because it protects your legal status better. Hmm. So th- there's there's many reasons why people may, may wish uh, to uh, retain the monarchy. When it comes to um, interpreting the nation to itself or representing all the people as a whole, well, the argument there uh, that, that Vernon Bogdanor uh, uh, uses in, in the monarchy and the constitution, he's, he's the arguably the, uh, the most important uh, scholar on the British constitution uh, of, of recent memory. Um, we have to think about it in, in in the historical context of the British crown, first of all, uh, Great Britain has at least four nations. It understands itself as being composed of at least four nations, uh, the English, the Welsh, the Scottish, and the Northern Irish. The monarch is the monarch of all of them. Uh, again, bringing back the example of, of uh, the, the Netflix uh, show, The Crown, um, uh, there, there is an episode that I thought was a, a fascinating episode. And thinking as someone living in Canada, I thought it was a fascinating episode. Uh, 
of uh, King, uh, well, Prince, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, Prince Charles, <laughs> uh, when he becomes formally the Prince of Wales, uh, goes to the trouble of learning Welsh so that he can address the Welsh in their own language and addresses them in a speech where he expresses respect and concern for having been neglected by the English for so long. And that apparently historically uh, led to uh, a significant reconciliation and perhaps a tamping down of some of the separatist uh, movement. Um, I don't think that it would work quite in the same way in Canada, Um, but I do remember, for example, uh, Thomas Mulcair saying that when he went, uh, when he was uh, head of the uh, of Her Majesty's loyal opposition on the Canadian Parliament, uh, and he went uh, to the United Kingdom, um, the Queen addressed him because he was from Quebec. Addressed him in French, mm. uh, so recognized the uh, importance of her role as queen not only of uh, the English population, but also the French population. So, so there, there are ways in which we can think of that role of um, transcending uh, perhaps uh, certain national divisions and cultural divisions uh, in the state, in the head of state, as, as, as having some, some kind of a, a salutary role. Um, we can see that as well in, in Belgium recently. In Belgium, um, Belgium was without a government for well over a year. Uh, uh, that is, the, the, the parties uh, that had won seats in, in parliament could not agree on a prime minister and a cabinet that had the confidence of the parliament. Uh, but the state did not dissolve. Uh, there were temporary measures that were legislated in order to keep the the government going to allow the government to pay its debts, but the state itself represented by the King of the Belgians was maintained. And to a significant degree, it was the unity of the monarchy in Belgium that prevented the state from simply separating into Flamand and and Wallonia um, because many of the disputes are again, uh, cultural disputes. So we, we see that in some cases because of cultural context. And we see that in other cases because of just simple political context. The the head of government is the head of a party that won the most seats. They will claim, and it is very good that they claim to represent all the people and to govern in the name of and for the benefit of all the people. But everybody knows that the only thing that they need in order to be preserved in government is to win, again, a majority of the seats. And strategically, for example, you look at the, the, the electoral map in the last election, you know that the Liberal Party can win by mostly investing in the urban vote, that the Conservative Party can win by investing more heavily in the rural and Western vote, that the Parti Québécois doesn't have to consider anything uh, east or west of Quebec. Right. So the crown because it's not elected and doesn't depend on political legitimacy, because it doesn't depend on a majority to win, uh, can act as a unifying force. Whether it does so or not is a different question. And a crown can be very divisive and the crown can be bumble many things. Uh, But in principle, the office uh, represents the entire nation. So both culturally, ethnically, historically, and politically, 
it is supposed to stand above uh, those kinds of divisions. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you, you, you know, you know, there's a lot of dimensions to a lot of this discussion, like the, the cultural, ethnic, historical, political. I, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, the, especially the political aspect of it with the political structure and things like that and the checks on power. And we talked a bit about the tradition and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, we, we talked about, uh, you know, for instance, in, in, this, in, in the United States a little earlier that politically speaking, at the end of the day, the buck fully stops with the president and a lot of people you know, politically speaking, think with that framework, so that causes a lot of problems. And I think from that political standpoint, it makes sense. Um, for, from from a cultural standpoint, though, I'm a little interested to hear more of your thoughts on, on this idea of sort of, as you said, there's a benefit to like spreading around like this sort of, uh, if you will, like what people view as either an authority or respectable or a part of the tradition of the country. You know, it's not all, for instance, going into one person. It's It's, it's there's sort of a detachment from the head of the state and in this case in Canada, for instance, and the actual prime minister and the politicians. So there's a, there's a cultural element to this discussion as well. But, but I would say even the United States where we would of course, maybe at a surface say politically speaking, it's all like centered, like the attention is within the, you know, at the white house ultimately. And, 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 you know, we, we might even say that culturally speaking, it, it all is as well, but I'm not necessarily if that's true, not necessarily sure if that's fully true either. Like culturally in the United States, you know, one can make the argument that, and I would, in a serious way, like that celebrities, for instance, there, there's something going on over there where they're almost like a form of, of, of an aristocracy. And then you have different high profile senators with not only political power, but very cultural followings. And they're looked at as figureheads. And so, so there is even culturally sort of a decentralization of power in a way, away from the president and the states. But none of you or I or many people wouldn't look at that and say, oh, that's the same thing. That's good. So what's the fundamental difference then? Is it is it ultimately, even if there's some cultural similarities, is it because ultimately political power is still with the president? Or where do you think that sort of fundamental disconnect is, even if culturally speaking, there is a bit of a dispersion of, of power and respect in the, in the United States, for example? There is a dispersion of, there's a dispersion of respect, but that, disper- that respect is, uh, doesn't necessarily translate so well within spheres and is usually contested if it translates between spheres, okay, yeah. um, when 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 a celebrity starts to um, uh, speak on political matters, usually the first response is to well, it, it's generally a polarized response. The people right. who agree <laughs> tend to agree, and the people who don't don't agree. Um, one of the uh, innovations of constitutional monarchy is that, by and large, uh, the monarch does not speak on political matters, um, so they can retain their representative function uh, without getting into specific kinds of debates. Now, that doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes uh, sometimes monarchs are required to respond to, to celebrity and, and very often to, a, to celebrities who, who generate genuine affection. And the example of the death of Princess Diana is, is probably the most, uh, the most obvious. Uh, when uh, Princess Diana died, uh, there was complete silence from Buckingham Palace, because of course the relationships with the Queen had been strained for some time, um, and eventually, on the advice, and this is very much the function of a Prime Minister, on the advice of the Prime Minister, um, uh, the Queen was told that she had to uh, make uh, make a statement of condolence because because Diana had <clears throat> become a focus of the affections of much of the British people. Uh, and disregarding her death was, in effect, disregarding those those affections. Mm. Um, so it, it can happen, but it doesn't necessarily uh, it's not necessarily the case that, say, 
celebrity translates into gravitas when it comes to uh, politics. Uh, there are some people who have actually done a significant amount of work on the ground, who have visited refugees, who have participated and educated themselves. So they they use the celebrity that they have in order to magnify their voice. But we usually respect them in part because they they have put in the work. Um, in the case of many other celebrities, uh, we can we can disregard their their views, and they they don't occupy ordinarily don't occupy uh, a formal role in the political system. So no one actually thinks that what any particular um, celebrity says represents the state in 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 any way. Um, as to politicians, well, yes, you know, many politicians do have a following, and many politicians have become uh, quite uh, uh, quite popular in their own right, kind of iconic. We, we're not immune to that in Canada as well. Right, I mean, right. Trudeau mania has gone through uh, version one and version two. Uh, and, and there's certainly uh, a, a level of uh, popularity, even for, for some provincial politicians. Um, when you have a political system that increasingly nationalizes politics, I think that magnifies the cultural weight of of politicians because every single debate becomes a national debate uh when things are less nationalized you can have much more local followings perhaps uh but but it doesn't necessarily trans, uh, translate across across provincial or state borders so i i think it's uh um the fundamental difference is that even even politicians who become celebrities uh, are not taken as speaking for the entire nation. Hmm. And the constitutional monarchies that work are those in which the one who represents the entire nation doesn't speak about politics at all. And there's a very strong taboo against the monarch saying something about politics. Uh, it was considered a faux pas that made the front page of the newspapers when people learned that uh, Prince Charles had been sending his recommendations on different environmental questions to the prime minister's office and expected to be heard. Mm. Uh, he was not supposed to do that. So there, there are taboos that are generally enforced that separate the rep, the formal representative ceremonial function from the day-to-day -day politics so that those two things don't become blurred. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of food for thought there. That, that, that answers the question for sure. Um, I think we're actually about the time where I'm going to move us to our formal wrap. I mean, we covered so much that I think adding more would be harder for you to summarize. I'm not, I'm not sure if no, you know, but, but in each, uh, but in each episode, I ultimately want to make sure that the guest has the last word to, uh, to, to put a finer point on it and bring our conversation full circle. So I'm going to throw, throw our last formal question at you officially now. So let me ask Victor, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways here for someone listening to you here on whether the monarchy is absurd and what the benefits are and so on and so forth. In other words, if there's, you know, one or two or just a few things that you want someone to take away from everything we've talked about, if anything, what would that ultimately be? I think that certain institutions that have developed historically through bizarre compromises that we may not be able to completely comprehend, nonetheless, have a role to play. We are not only rational creatures, we're also effective creatures. Uh, we are not creatures that um, respond to political uh, strategies uh, in a, 
uh, completely logical fashion. We very often need reminders of our common membership in a political community and, and of the limits that we ought to impose on ourselves. Um, so having a little absurdity in our political system can serve a salutary function. Having a political system that is hyper-rational, that is perfectly fine-tuned, can in fact be more problematic in the long run. So if you have a monarch, and the monarch seems to be working fairly well, there's really no reason to get rid of them. Just enjoy the fact that you have a stable democratic system uh, that happens to have Queen Elizabeth on the currency. <laughs> and I think that's an excellent place to leave it. Uh, Victor Muniz Fratichili, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 